Hello? Is it working? Hello. Okay. Oh. Like that. I don't know. Is this one work? Is this one working? Good morning. to elaborate a little bit Yeah. It might be less than that. All right. So, you know, I'll, I'll listen to 
themselves ask a few questions. But if it looks like people are interested, if they look like they're chomping at the bit, I might kind of open it up. You know, because I don't want to be one of the people who are, you know, like, I'm going to do it my way or no way. Well, and you can put your hand up and choose to do it that way, too, if you can choose it that way. Right, right. Good morning. Um, good morning. Okay. Um, I hope that um, you have your. I'm impressed that you're out here 
for the first session of the conference. So the first 8.30 is often very early for some of us. Uh, my name is Medupe Labodi. I, am, uh, te I teach public history and museum studies at IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Yes, representing back there. I'm sorry, I don't know what, put a microphone in front of me and start doing shtick here. Um, I, uh, it is my great privilege to serve as a moderator for today's speaker. Um, and if you have heard of the off-quoted statistics that, quote, Americans put more trust in history museums and historic sites than in any other sources, source for exploring the past, um, which has kind of come into almost a commonplace now, you are familiar with some of David Thielen's work. That is a quotation from page 105 if you'd like to look at Google Books, of uh, Presence of the Past. And in the 1990s, David Thielen and Roy Rosenzweig and a team of historians, teachers, graduate students, museum professionals, and public historians undertook an audacious, groundbreaking, groundbreaking project that I'm not sure if it will be repeated. Um, that project was to create a census of behaviors, attitudes, and experiences related to the past trying to understand how Americans look at, think about, play with, work with the past. The team devised a study to explore not only what Americans thought, but the activities they undertook, such as looking at photographs. This is the one that I often use in, um, when I'm meeting with groups, uh, especially of people who think they don't like, about his don't like history. I said, what was the most recent historical experience you've done? Most of them say they don't do history. Um, but when you say, have you looked at pictures? Have you talked to somebody that you care about, whether they're related to you or not, about their past experiences? They'll say, yes, I have. And of course, I got that exercise completely from presence of the past. This study conscientiously documents that documents the different ways in with which ethnic, racial, and national groups were underrepresented under in previous studies and involved focused interviews with, um, with something that's very difficult to do now, which is landline telephone-based interviews, but also more focused interviews with groups of African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, and really fascinating, uh, people resident on the Oglala Sioux, the Pine Ridge Reservation, uh, the Oglala Sioux. It is hard to underestimate the importance of this of David Thielen's work that has been involved that has been involved in the foundations of much of the historical practice that we undertake today. David Thielen came to history in somewhat of a traditional way. He earned a PhD at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and also um, studied on studied citizenship in the Progressive Era. He spent most of his formal academic career at Indiana University Bloomington, from which he recently retired, and like many people, are finding their retirement, I think, more busy than um, when they were involved in their, in their formal wage labor. He's a dedicated scholar and has spent much of his career trying to understand in various ways the relationship between citizenship or democratic life and history whether in his first book, The New Citizenship, which looked at the progressive era in Wisconsin, to his deep interactions with museums and libraries. He has twice received the ASLH's Award of Merit 
and has been committed to international understandings of the past, not only the US and other countries, but looking at how other countries look at history. He was the longtime editor of the Journal of American History and helped shift its emphasis to taking on more interest in museums and public history projects. David's most recent work is the 2015 Building a New South Africa, One Conversation at a Time, in which he and Carrie Morgan documented a community project designed to get people talking. It's a fascinating exercise in reading um, about people living in what is quote unquote the, called the New South Africa, contending with issues such as the, um, the, the legacies of apartheid, especially in a township called Alexandria, Alexandria or Alex, um, talking about the present realities of racial antagonism and national antagonism, physical and emotional, emotional safety, crime, economic hardship, but also issues like what it's like to be a sister um, what it's like to be a neighbor. So today, um, we're going to be very low-key. We're not going to be using this blue-screened panel, panel up here. Um, David will be giving his talk, then I'll be asking a few questions, and then we'll be opening it up for, to the audience. So I now introduce to you David Thielen. Thank you. Good morning. <clears throat> this morning what I want to do is to continue what Roy and I were trying to do with Presence of the Past. Uh, we came from a generation uh, that aspired to try to democratize the content and practice of history, whatever that was, but that was our ambition. And I think we could say that by the early 1990s, professional historians had taken giant steps toward democratizing history's content history subjects, topics, experiences, much more closely resembled the rich diversity of American life than they had earlier. But, as many people observed at the time, um, professional historians have been much less successful in democratizing the practice of history. Roy and I hoped that a survey of how Americans understood and used the past in their everyday lives might provide clues for better connecting professional history with everyday experiences with the past. And certainly there have been uh, lots of calls on professionals to share authority, lots of calls to let go of authority, lots of initiatives aimed in those directions like, like civic engagement or uh, dialogue or partnerships. Well, since being involved with the presence of the past, um, I've observed dozens of practices in museums, in national parks, in classrooms, uh, and I've concluded that too often they fall short of their democratic potential for a very surprising reason. And the surprising reason is they'd have too narrow an understanding of history. This morning, I want to propose a broader approach to history that is grounded in an observation about democracy made by the South African uh, Njibulo Ndebele in the middle of his country's struggle for freedom. What he said was, democracy breeds possibility. 
That's going to be the key word, possibility. Democracy breeds possibility. People's horizons of what is thinkable and doable are stretched. I'm trying to imagine a history that unleashes in participants, I'm talking about visitors, students, whoever, TV watchers, uh, in participants, um, experiences of greater democracy, dem greater democratic possibility in themselves and in their surroundings. The key, I'll argue, is that in planning programs and exhibits, we need to help audiences get, see, and experience, and experience the past from the point of view of those who lived history. I'll call this re-experiencing history. A solid foundation for a democratic history that unleashes possibilities proceeds from the conviction that we give something a history, that is a beginning, a middle, and an end, in order to enable people to see that the things around them are not fixed, or given, or natural, or inevitable. As Herbert Gutman said, the central value of historical understanding is that it transforms historical givens into historical contingencies. The present shape of things could have been different. The future could also be different. A history that is about contingencies will also be a record of possibilities. Possibilities that people uncover and explore in themselves and in their worlds. I want to propose how we can experience such a history from two starting points that are grounded in this notion of experiencing democracy. I want to start with the best mentor I know for thinking about democratic experience, Walt Whitman. Indeed, Whitman insisted that experience is the best starting place for people to develop a broader understanding of democracy. Democracy, wrote Whitman, is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. So how could he write a book about something that hasn't yet been enacted? And the answer he gave was that though it hasn't yet been enacted, the present contains within it sites or experiences, democratic starting places, what he called democratic vistas. The present has those things from which people can glimpse and nurture still wider and deeper democratic possibilities we could, from the middle of these small things. And he named in his own life a number of such democratic vistas. And I think that'll give you a sense of, of uh, uh, for yourselves, um, democratic vistas. For example, when he was in the midst of a loving companionship, he could glimpse more like what a larger democracy would look like. When he voted, he could, or didn't vote, he could glimpse more of what democracy might look like. When he was nursing soldiers in war who had been wounded but still believed in the cause, he could glimpse more democracy. When he walked on the streets of cities and saw people from different ethnic groups and different occupations talking among themselves, he could envision uh, democracy, um, more democracy. And um, when he imagined a future when women would be completely equal to men. He imagined he could vision more what democracy would be. Now what Walt Whitman's democratic vistas have in common was that they were experienced as open-ended. 
They each come with possibilities. A relationship, a companionship can change. It can get hotter, it can get colder, it can go this direction, it can go that direction. But whatever it is, it isn't stable. It's, oh, it's, it's open-ended. When, when he picked up a ballot to vote, uh, he had a choice. He could go any direction or even not vote. Open-ended. This open-endedness, this fluidity of experience, is what makes it central to democracy, open-endedness. When democracy takes hold of people's lives, concluded John Keane in his recent monumental study of democratic practices over three millennia, when democracy takes hold of people's lives, it gives them a glimpse of the contingency of things. In a similar vein, James Kloppenberg concluded from his recent study of democratic ideas that an orientation toward open-endedness is what defines democracy. My second starting place for um, exploring how democracy was about experiencing open-endedness particularly appeals to me because it came from people, uh, people we talked with in our survey. Uh, Twenty years ago when Roy and I were trying to make sense of all this stuff that we had no practice making sense of, uh, that people were telling us about how they used the past, I thought the most intriguing thing we heard, didn't know what to make of it, but I thought the most intriguing thing was that respondents seemed to always focus on experience as the key unit in history. Not things that I had been taught, but experience. Um, as they re and what did they mean by that? What they meant was as they talked about and reflected on how they went through an experience, here's them, here's an experience, they were always asking themselves t two things. How, and it didn't matter what the experience was, the divorce of their parents, fighting as soldiers in battle, whatever the experience is. There was always two questions. One is, how did that experience change them? Was I changed by being a soldier? Was I changed by the divorce of my parents? And how much did they change it? Did they make a difference in the war or in the divorce of their parents? The point was that they could change or be changed by passing through an experience. That experience was open-ended. I still recall vividly a Mexican-American woman uh, who told us, who went on at some length, she lived in Texas, and she, told, she went on about this challenge she faced. Her son came to her one day and said, and it was in his senior year, as I recall, in high school, and he said, my girlfriend, who was Anglo, my girlfriend's mom won't let her come to the prom with me because I'm Mexican-American. And when she talked about this experience, she, she doesn't recall what she told her son, but what she recalls is her agony of trying to figure out what to tell him. I had raised the kid with these understandings of the relations between Anglos and Mexicans in Texas. And she had raised him to believe things were getting better. She's a mother. She wants him to have hope. She wants him to think that prejudice isn't going to hold him back. So he expected, when he asked the boy, when he asked 
the girl f to come to the prom with him, he expected she'd say yes. And she failed. The parents wouldn't let her come. Now, see, this isn't just about history. It's not just about interpreting the relation of Mexican-Americans and whites. This is about something much more important. It's about being a parent and raising your kid and developing, um, helping them to develop reasonable expectations for navigating the world. In other words, this is, this is the payoff of open-endedness. What to her, and she talks about it years later, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to tell him. Open-ended. Re-experiencing is, first of all, an experiential form of inquiry in which people try to understand and use the past, not by distancing themselves from a moment in the past they wanted to observe, but by trying to participate in it as fully as possible. To explore the open-endedness before us is also to imagine change and to reflect on our capacity as an agent of change. The challenge reliving presents to scholarship is not to invent something new, but to recognize and take seriously something that is intuitive and familiar. Indeed, Wilhelm Diltai in 19th century Berlin, R.G. Collingwood in 20th century Oxford, uh, constructed whole philosophies of history about re around re-experiencing. Collingwood called it reenactment. Diltai called it re-experiencing. It's the same thing reliving the open-endedness of experience. Of course, no one can literally stand in the shoes of someone else. But as Ali Wiesel insisted, understanding may only be possible if we try to go through what original participants experienced. You must, in some significant psychological way, experience what they experience. You're not exposed to what they are exposed to, but you must take your mind through, take your feelings through what they went through and allow it in. We can understand what an earlier actor was experiencing because we too have felt sad or angry or loved or embarrassed or forgetful. We too have sought to confront and evade challenges in our lives. We too have tried to run from, hide from, con uh, resist power. We too have wondered where we came from. We too have wondered what happens to us after we die. So it's possible to get closer to people in the past. By trying to re-experience what actors in the past were struggling to frame, users in the present develop skills of empathy that allow us to widen our own sense of our possibilities in our world and within ourselves. Trying to stand in the shoes of others is an active participatory process that presents experiential vistas that advance the basic democratic objective of facilitating people to encounter people different from themselves. And the difficulties that we encounter as we try to empathize uh, with different people help us to explore different things in ourselves. Reenactment tries to take us inside the fluidity and open-endedness participants actually experience passing through a challenge. Before people decide what to say or do, they face pressures and cross-pressures. They're flooded with observations, with feelings, with fantasies, with values, with possible self-images, 
with hopes and fears, with co colliding relationships around them. Uh, they're rarely confident of what others may think uh, if they do this or that. In a moment, they move back and forth to the past, back to the past to remember something, forward to the future to anticipate or expect something. A person uh, at any moment might select any role. She might be a woman, a Chicagoan, a Methodist, a Democrat, an Italian-American, a teacher, a poker player, a Cubs fan, a coffee addict, a lesbian, go on and on. And each of these roles uh, is a distinctive point of access at the social level to that role's whole circumstances, traditions, and debates. Each role is. And at the individual level, each role uh, is an access to distinctive feelings and self-images. As she explores a role, she can look in around inside that role to explore how that role both liberates and constrains her as an individual. Individuals may feel alternatively, even simultaneously, full of confidence and vulnerability, full of pride, full of shame, familiarity, strangeness. They may feel bursts of energy, and they may feel exhaustion. In short, they experience what Reddy calls the uncertainty and flux of the moment. That's what open-endedness is, the uncertainty and flux of the moment. T.S. Eliot called it a lifetime burning in every moment. Every moment is full of this. Now, wouldn't it be great if our visitors could feel that heat of possibilities in our museums uh, and sites? In order to illustrate the past in practice, I turned to two perhaps unexpected sources, a museum program in Indiana and an army training initiative. Follow the North Star program at Connor Prairie, north of Indianapolis, is one of the edgiest and most immersive living history programs. During a 90-minute uh, evening program, visitors in groups of 12 to 17 play the role of runaway slaves trying to make their way to freedom in 1836 Indiana. Along the way, they encounter slave owners, slave catchers, slave traders who are chasing them, hunting them, uh, and want to sell them back to slavery. They also meet Quakers and free Negroes who help them figure out how to escape to Michigan and Canada. In a debrief at the end, participants reflect on what they learned about themselves as hunted slaves, as individuals, and as makers of history. In the 1980s, the United States Army revived staff rides, which went back a long time before, um, to military, uh, earlier military conflicts as a major initiative to transform the way it used history to train soldiers. Failure to defeat a weaker enemy in Vietnam, difficulties in turning military victory into civilian stability in Iraq, led the Army to rethink what soldiers should learn from earlier battles. Instead of training soldiers to fight down the chain of command, following traditional doctrine and manuals distilled from earlier battles, the Army wanted to shift the line of sight from studying battles after they had happened and explaining the outcome to uncovering the open-endedness soldiers originally experienced in the midst of battle. Each participant uh, played a role of a key figure in a battle, and then in groups of 20 or 30, they traveled often in vans to the original battleground 
And when they got to a battleground, they stopped at 10 or 15 places along the way. And at each place, they would try to look at the open-endedness present, the alternatives, the possibilities in the terrain, in each other. What was it like before the battle? The possibilities. Um, at the end, they discussed not only what they learned about the battle and war fighting, but what they learned about themselves. The same thing as at Connor Prairie. What they learned about themselves from passing through these experiences. Participants liked these projects, they said, because they felt like participants in history, participants in history, fully immersed with bodies, with senses, with feelings, in their usual encounters with history, in museums, in classrooms, on TV programs, they said they had felt like spectators who listened to or read or looked at an exhibit that some expert had told them what had happened. By contrast, a Follow the North Star visitor reported, I'll just do this for a lot of visitors here, uh, you're a participant instead of kind of, sort of listening in on history. Participant instead of kind of, sort of listening in on history. You don't know his. <laughs> you don't know someone else lives until you walk a mile in their footsteps. On a staff ride to Chancellorsville, Army Chief of Staff Carl Vono observed that history infuses with living immediacy. The student quickly learns that battles are not merely matters of theory or doctrine; they really happen. And they happened as open-ended, fluid, contested realities. That's what was important. Ordered by slave catchers and slave traders to show their deference to whites by looking down at their feet and not facing them, visitors reported fe feeling the experience of intimidation, surprise at the readiness to be passive, wanting to be invisible, they experienced the feelings and emotions of being sort of second class, not human. Or being seen as stupid in the bad guy's eyes. How it feels to be afraid and powerless. Experiencing the feeling of being hunted and at risk. The intimate fears that Civil War soldiers had experienced standing on the very sites where we stood on a staff ride kindled in participants memories of what they had encountered in Iraq and Afghanistan, practices that transported people to the vulnerability real people felt when they tried to escape slavery or battle. But the strongest sense, participants reported, was the uncertainty of their situation, the doubts and fears about what they should do or even could do next, the original open-endedness. I was scared to death because I didn't know what was going to happen, said somebody at Follow the North Star. Another visitor said, I didn't know whom to trust or where to go. We're recapturing this open-endedness. What would happen when we reach this next structure as we're walking along here? What's going to happen when we hit that structure? Vignettes from earlier battles, the words of those who had fought there came to life. At Chickamauga, Lieutenant John M. Johnston of the 79th Pennsylvania <coughs> 
We had marched thus but a short distance and were rising the slope of a hill when we were suddenly opened on by a body of the enemy's infantry lying concealed below its crest. There is a buzz and a confusion on the right of the regiment. It wavers. It breaks. Our left companies now break and follow the right in confusion. I feel more like crying than anything else. The staff ride manuals are full of accounts of what Clausewitz had called the fog and friction of war. This time, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Watt Floyd of the 17th Tennessee, so sudden and unexpected was the attack from our rear that every man seemed to act for himself regardless of orders. Or at Antietam, Colonel R.T. Bennett of the 14th North Carolina, confusion that seemed remediless followed, open-ended, surreal experience. The hardest part of framing a military challenge, as Carol Reardon put it on the Gettysburg staff ride, was to overcome the natural instinct to impose order and closure on a situation, and instead to keep things fluid, the basic reality of war. The point of a staff ride, said James Stensvag, chief historian of the Training and Doctrine Command, was to encourage soldiers to widen <coughs> the range of what they experienced, to think outside the box of formal doctrine, of manuals, to seek out and explore for themselves and respond to the realities open-ended in front of them. Trying to stand in the shoes of others to understand how they frame choices led many to turn toward and explore themselves. Since it's a personal experience, said a Father of the North Star visitor, you start thinking things about yourself, said another. I don't think it's so simple to know whether you would be the person you wished to be if you were really there. I particularly like this graduate student who said uh, she was a graduate student in history, and she was really troubled by her ex uh, that her experience as a scholar, where she'd read lots of stuff on slavery, did not prepare her for exploring her capacities as a real person. Sorry. It was a frightening discovery. I'm quoting her now. It was a frightening discovery that when reading words, it was easy to assume that one would resist oppression. But when actually experiencing that oppression, one might not have the courage to resist. Another said, I tried to learn about myself. Some things I liked, some reactions I didn't like. A participant in a Sioux War staff ride reported that it had caused much introspective type reflection on myself, leadership, commitment, and dedication. And in the so-called integration phases at the end of staff rides, that's what the participants would talk about, what they learned about themselves, what I'm capable of took you right into that open-endedness, which, anyway. They expected that the future would be contested. In the era of the Iraq War, where, when soldiers on staff rides were often Iraq veterans, a 2002 staff ride from West Point to Lee's 1862 Maryland campaign, which culminated at Antietam Creek, sparked a particularly lively discussion. Facilitators began this by reading an exchange of letters between Confederate General Robert E. Lee and his boss, Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And Lee wrote Davis um, that Maryland, Marylanders would welcome 
the arrival of Confederate troops because they would uh, feel they were being liberated from the Union by those Confederate troops. Not so, said Davis, that's not what they will think. They will think you are an army of occupation. You are coming in to occupy Maryland. Veterans on this staff ride discussed the challenges of conducting a war when it was unclear whether the mission was to liberate or occupy. When the realities on the ground in Iraq were so different from the fantasies in Washington. That's what they talked about on these rides. Several visitors to follow the North Star said that what they liked best about that program was that they didn't just learn about slaves and slave owners, but there were all these other Hoosiers they encountered, different roles, Quakers and this one and that one, that life, life in its full complexity, its full contestedness, not just one or the other. This is the closest look I've had at the fight for freedom, said a visitor. They talked about experiencing themselves as historical actors, possible makers of change, wondering what cap capacities they had for resisting the powerful in the real world. They derived civic lessons. Visitors learned, and these are some of the lessons I read, visitors learned both the worst about humans and the best. They, uh, they learned the value of freedom. They learned not to make anyone feel less of a human. They learned that all people are equal, <coughs> that every man is the same in God's eyes, and they learned all this as they experienced, experienced how it feels to be treated less than human. They experienced how it feels to be treated less than human. And in the integration discussions after the Sioux staff rides, wow, many of the people, many of the soldiers questioned whether the army had a right to round up Indians and send them to reservations. And at one point, uh, one of the soldiers, he was a captain back from Iraq, said, I think the army is culturally arrogant. And the facilitators, the facilitators turned, here's a room about this size, about this number of people. And the facilitators said, how many agree with this guy that the army is culturally arrogant? All the hands go up. This is your army. Stimulated by the Sioux War staff ride and stimulated by Iraq. Um, from these practices, participants encountered people and circumstances different from their own and thereby widened the sense of human possibilities they could draw on. They practiced trying to empathize, to, to widen horizons of possibility, to explore what they were capable of, in a world composed of contingencies. We try to stand in the shoes of others to see things as we try to understand others in everyday life. The great democratic promise of these practices was, as Jonathan Clark wrote, quote, to restore to history, history to life, means to restore to it its open future. And this entails restoring an open future to our present too. These practices invited visitors to figure out how they could make a difference 
if they believed their futures were truly open. Indeed, to figure out how they could make history. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Dave. I think you had a, it's really provocative. And I'm going to, I know that people have questions, but I'm going to take the opportunity of being the first of the uh, moderator and ask my first question to give you also some possibility of uh, framing your questions. And then I'll call on you and I'll repeat your questions because this session is being recorded and they won't be able to necessarily get you from the, um, from the uh, back. Um, so when, when I was listening to you talk, one of the things, so I'll, I'll do this typical thing, I'll have an observation, then a question. Um, when I was hearing uh, the, you talk, I was really interested in the connections that Walt Whitman is able to make between, as you emphasized several times, loving companionship, that he saw loving companionship in some ways as both political and democratic, as it's open-ended, it's fluid, it's contested, and I think anyone who's been in any sort of loving companionship would definitely recognize that. What they don't necessarily recognize is the idea of saying what's going on personally um, is also part of democracy, that that's also part of politics, um, and in the, for our case, historical interpretation. And what I'll also link this to is something that's always puzzled me is when I've listened to, um, had the opportunity to listen to several people who participated in freedom rides. So fast forward, you know, to about 50 years ago. And one of the things when, you, when they were always asked by the, by the audience, what kept you going? Why did you do this? What you were, you know, people were getting brain damage from being beaten up. And what they would say is something like um, love, or um, Diane Nash has said, agopic love, or we loved one another, um, which, you know, this isn't necessarily talking about, they're really clear, there were romances going on, but this isn't how they were talking about, or it could be in some cases. So how do we as muse interpreters, so we have historical actors, we have like really anarchic poets talking about emotional states as being part of really understanding their lives, understanding your lives and understanding your life as a citizen. How as historical interpreters do we make those connections? Because as someone who is hardcore trained historian, one of the things that historian, that if you go into an academic seminar, people will say, I don't care what you thought they loved or whatever they said, like what did they actually do? Um, as if emotional life isn't, isn't in action too. And I think that's followed, followed through in how we interpret history, too. Um, how the emotional life, which is also part of reenactment um, or re-experiencing, that seems to be something that we feel very uncertain about how to engage with. So um, I guess I'd like your thoughts about how, as interpreters, we can, we can do that more. So. <laughs> Sorry. The observation. Um, I guess my first observation is I 100% agree with you and, and the implicit criticism of the way we practice history, which is somewhere, somewhere, somewhere along the line, I believe it was in the 19th, 18th century, somebody separated the mind from feelings, some philosophers. And the wonderful thing 
about the wonderful concept that will bring them back together again is experience. Experience is neither intellectual nor emotional, or it's both. So if you ask, if you, if one way you can avoid it is by saying, I'm not going to talk about feelings and thoughts. I'm going to talk about experiences. Now, this, the example I gave of this woman and her, and her son uh, and the issue of the prom, it's obviously profoundly about feelings and, and a history that doesn't take into account what she is struggling with, talking to her son and trying to raise a kid. If our history can't deal with that, God help it. You know, it's not worth doing, I don't think. Uh, but if thinking about every interaction you have ever experienced with Anglos, has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? What about segregation at the swimming pool? It seems like we're there now there's a pool where we can get we can swim in the same pool. Well, I see black and white couple I see uh, Mexican American and white couples. I see I think it's getting better. I know I'm going to tell and plus I want him to to see a hopeful future, I'm going to emphasize the positive things. Very, I mean, how more intellectual can I get than that? That's interpreting history, right? Um, she, and, and the stakes are really important. It's her son. So it's not an academic stake. Um, I, think, I, I think we simply have to recognize that our visitors know this. We're not, they may know it better than we do. They may have to teach us is my feeling about this. I, I think we, um, uh, it comes down to a question of trusting visitors. It, I don't think you have to, uh, I guess I'm stumbling around not saying what I, what I probably really. Um, oh, just go ahead and say it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, this is a really terrible indictment to the extent that people's experience with professional history is the one that you're talking mm -hmm. about, where feelings are left out or something, it's crummy history. I would say, who, who cares? I mean, who, who has just a mind? I thought all of philosophy in the 20th century had kind of shot that one. Um, just a mind, I'm mm. sorry. Uh, I don't want to be facetious because this is really important. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think I may be moving a step past it, I, but I think the only way to step past your question, the only way is to just acknowledge mm -hmm. that we have feelings and minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, do you, I'll just say, share one, one uh, the privilege of the podium, I'll share one observation I've had that um, just a historical observation is so today was the first day I've come into you know this place and one of the things that excited me a great deal as I walked in I could say there's Canada there's Canada over there and what that meant to me was like there's freedom um, Detroit was a huge amount of slavery anti-slavery pro-slavery violence like right where we're standing and that if you were able to escape to Windsor or to Ontario, that was where after, you know, the British Empire would not honor extradition to the United States for enslaved, formerly enslaved people. And I was really surprised that instead of looking over there, and this looks nothing like the landscape did 170, 180 years ago, 
But I was really shocked about how um, I had no idea it was both that close and that far from my maps. And um, so I'm having this real mix of emotions about like what was it like to live in Detroit in 1850 when the uh, Fugitive Slave Act was passed? What was it like to be engaged in illegal violence? What was it like to live in Canada and tired of fugitives and refugees coming over and over and over? And none of my, um, you know, I'm obviously bring a lot of academic history to that, but nothing had it had um, prepared me to feel how it, like excited and scared I felt in night 2016, looking from one convention center into another kind of boring built environment over there in Canada. And I'm not sure what you do with those emotions. I just wanted to share that was a historical emotion I had today. <laughs> can, well, can I? Sure. That, that is what is so amazing about Army staff rides, because they occur at the very place where the battle took place. And you see that little round top looks very different from one place, from standing on it, from being at its foot. You, I, over and over, and you know, I'm not much of a military, well, um, standing there, seeing the terrain, uh, well, for example, following Custer up in his pursuit of, of Sitting Bull up the little Bighorn Creek, and you come to a certain place, and you can't see because it's canyons and it's a narrow creek going through uh, canyons. You stand there, and you're, it's June 26th, uh, you know, 1876. You don't know where the hell Sitting Bull is. You have a job, but you don't know where he is. And the, a creek un, unfolds, and here's open-endedness. Where the hell is Sitting Bull? Where the hell are these Indians? Uh, and so Custer takes, uh, directs a lieutenant from his cavalry and one of the Crow Indians, who was an ally of the cavalry, uh, and says, go up this hill here. It's called the Crow's Nest, if any of you care about this. Go up this hill, look out, and see if you see Indians. And take this telescope with you. So up they went to be able to look up the canyon to see. I'm making the same point you mm -hmm. are. And they, they get out, they look, come back down to Custer, and the lieutenant says, there are no Indians. I just looked, and the Crow Scout says, lots of Indians. <laughs> so here's the problem of intelligence in every war, right? <laughs> um, so what's Custer going to do? He stops the thing, and he goes up. And of course, on the staff ride, we all go with him, the guy who's playing Custer. And we pass around this 1870s telescope, and we look further up the Little Bighorn. And I could, in that moment, I could feel the challenges both those guys had earlier felt. I wouldn't have known. There was kind of dust. There was this. There was that. I could have said either. And I felt like I was, had been transported into um, that. It's that same thing you're talking mm -hmm. about, maybe in a different way. Standing in the actual place of something makes things different. And I, we certainly didn't know we'd be dead by the end of the day, you know, when you're doing that which the historian comes along and tells you. Yes, question. Yes.
So the question is that the examples that Dave Thielen brought up in this presentation were very much tied to place, to physical place and it being in a place. The question is how can we bring those same sort of emotional feelings and resonance when we are actually in a museum setting? Well, um, the first thing I'd say is that, of course, Follow the North Star uh, is not really grounded in a place. Um, it could be any, you could construct that more or less anywhere, at least where the Underground Railroad existed in that case, or something comparable, you know, other, another historical event that has, where, where if you put people in them, in that situation, they would feel the cross pressures, they would feel, you, they would have to play a role and try to figure out what they would do, right? So I think you could do it almost anywhere, uh, but it would, you might have to change the case. However, um, I'm also struck that that's the emotional one. That's if you're going to do living history, if you're going to put, which I'm very much in favor of, putting, putting people in the middle of a real situation so they have to reflect on, better on themselves. But I'm thinking of a case of a museum that simply does it on an intellectual level, and that's the D-Day Museum in uh, New Orleans, where they have a video of a black nurse. It's on the wall, just a video. They're interviewing her. You can interview anybody, right? They interviewed her, and she is you're, the, the thing the visitor gets, a video about this big, a woman talking, and she's recalling how she was a nurse on a uh, island in the Pacific War, in World War II, and she says, and here came this soldier, this white soldier, he was wounded, maybe some of you saw this video, he was wounded, he was gasping, he crawled up to me, this black nurse says, and he said, and he pleads with her to give him a transfusion of blood, which he thinks is all that's going to save his life. Now we're, it's this nurse telling the story. And she said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do because the only blood I had had been drawn from blacks. And the army had a policy prohibiting giving black blood to white people. What was I to do? End of video. That's, that's a smart. If you, I mean, if you can leave the question, uh, the question not only about help trying to get in her head as she tried to agonize, but also you're, you immediately think, what would I have done, right? So I think, it, I think it's more, it's not so much the situation, it's, it's the, the what? The um, looking for the chance of leaving, of leaving visitors with open-ended experiences. Yes, sir. Well, it's, more, it's more of a comment. I'm thinking of objects. Um, anybody who's been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., there's uh, at, almost in the center of the museum, there's a platform of shoes. And it's one of the most profound experiences I've ever had because everything that story represents is distilled. A 
human level. Can I put an exclamation? Oh, I'm, I'm just going to summarize a comment here. It was The comment was on the um, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C.'s display of hundreds, maybe thousands of shoes on a plinth representing the people whose shoes were confiscated before they were murdered by the National Socialists in a concentration camp, and that representing the power of objects. Let me put an exclamation point. You referred to are finding that museums were trusted more than other places. One of the main reasons they were more trusted was exactly your point. They had the objects, and the objects were open-ended. So what, pe what the visitor could do was imagine what else could be done with it. Well, the shoes could have been worn to walk from one place to another. Shoes could, were a part of basically being alive and so on. And, and so to look at the possibilities in an I mean, people like it because it takes them right up to those possibilities. That shoe, it was being worn by somebody real. You know. I'm just underscoring your point. And I'm just going to ask that one of the things, though, too, this is what you're saying is different than just saying an object can speak for itself, Absolutely right? Because I'm just thinking about, like, if you have, like, a washboard, um, that seems like that washboard's really different if it's being used in a string band versus if it's being used in an army camp by a laundress versus by a maid whose, whose owner, I should say, whose employer will not allow her to use the washing machine. I mean, those are really different. It's the same object, um, but radically different contexts. So, yes, here. So the question is to say that history, as we all know, is not black and white, but many of our visitors expect that, maybe. So one of the difficulties is to try, the question is how do you show the multiple facets of history? Well, multiple perspectives. Or multiple perspectives, right? yeah. Um, that's what all of these things, that's what they have in common. They may not be the academic notion of multiple perspectives, but when on the second day of uh, Gettysburg, in the evening of the second day, when Lee and Longstreet are looking over here at the, at the Union lines, uh, and they're trying to debate, do we charge tomorrow or not? And Lee, the boss man, says, uh, we can do it. And Longstreet says, no way. No army on earth has ever, has ever succeeded against these odds. We're going to get beat. And not only that, we have no business being here in Pennsylvania. Let's just, we should get out of here, 
go back across the Potomac and, um, and defend our revolution, defend the country we're trying to become. We're not supposed to be up here in the north. And they go on and on. This, you've probably read this. It's, this account's pretty famous in, in various contexts. Multiple perspectives. Do you attack, don't you attack? Um, now, you know, historians rush in and they say Pickett's charge failed. And they rush in and they say that was the high point of the Confederacy, end of the discussion of the Civil War. But what if you, but what if you instead portray the multiple perspectives, in this case of the two leading generals on the battlefield for the Confederate Army at that moment, arguing. My point about Follow the North Star was all the different people, Quakers and f f you know, free Negroes and slave catchers, what you wanted, they're all there. You know, you, you, I think of the disaster, the failure of the um, exhibit at um, Enola Gay. The failure, what was the need to give an answer? What was the need to say whether or not the United States should or should not have dropped the atomic bomb? Who needs to say that? There were plenty of people at the time, Eisenhower, for example, Le Admiral Leahy, for example, a whole pile of scientists at Chicago, for example, who said, don't do it. Why does someone, I'm not arguing the merits. I do think as citizens we have to have an answer. But as professionals, I think we, I'm just with you 100%. You look for the multiple perspectives, whether it's Lee and Longstreet, whether it's scientists and admirals, whether it's, I mean, because in the real world, and it may not be roles, you know what I mean, it may be just people. So one, sla when slaves think about running away, as I understand what I know about the Underground Railroad, there's a tremendous discussion among them. They there's relationships involved. There's wives to reconnect with. There's people say this, people say that. I, I think usually um, a all you have to do is want to do it. The, the multiple perspectives are there in the actual experiences of a moment. Lee, they didn't just say, I know what, let's have an event and call it, you know, Pickett's Charge. <laughs> and then the historians will know what to do. <laughs> yes, in the back. So the question is observed that the focus has a lot of time now been on the experiences and uh, the, the experiences that in these cases are happening, happening within institutional as being sponsored. What is the responsibility of the museum to facilitate meaning making from that, those experiences? I, I, I have two ways of answering that, I think, <laughs> multiple. Um, the one is uh, that maybe our skill as a museum is not giving the final answer, is not telling them what they should think, is not giving them their meaning. Uh, maybe our skill is collecting those multiple perspectives and inviting them to read 
a letter from Eisenhower opposing the bomb to read Harry Truman's reason for doing it and so on. Uh, or in various ways to, you know, to, pr to go out of our way. It, and it's not always easy to uncover the open-endedness that was there. Because once something's over, everybody's busy criticizing it or praising it or something. But while it's happening, it's, it is open-ended. So I, I kind of am, I kind of wish we would see our mission differently. I wish we would see our mission not to have the final word, not to, not to be the makers of meaning, but to be the collector of, alter, you know, of the richness that was actually once there. Okay, my second answer is I agree with you. I, I mean, I have another, I have another instinct, which is to want desperately. I have strong. I do think it matters whether the bomb was dropped. I do think. Uh, at any bunch, there are any bunch of meanings I'd like people to think about. And I guess I, I rotate between a didactic or a, a di didactic challenge and just say it. Do you think this or that? Here's uh, challenge them to look into themselves because ultimately they're going to make the meaning. Whatever I say doesn't matter. So you're really trying to figure out what will get to a visitor. And I know the last word won't, right? Um, but uh, I do think we can uncover the range of meanings. But I agree with you, it's a very hard, it's very, because we're trained. We do have more practice in this. But we also have more practice in collecting sources, anyway. But I, I just want to follow on on that a little bit. What's the difference then between um, kind of going through an ex a physical experience and saying, wow, I didn't realize it was so complicated, or I feel like they must have been really afraid, to then kind of going on and saying maybe it's empathy or some things, saying like, boy, if people felt afraid when they were fleeing slavery, well, then what do people feel when they're fleeing tyranny, other forms of tyranny, and then and then making responsibility, and then what responsibility do I have? I'm not saying that the museum needs to say, you have a responsibility. Gee, I hadn't thought about that people are people, and they would feel, and, and I don't mean to, I, again, I don't mean to be facetious, because that's, historical empathy is extraordinarily difficult. Um, so what's the difference between that, and then kind of as you're saying, the democratic vista, like, that internal feeling, that internal feeling, and the democratic, you know, being a citizen. Oh, yeah, that a yeah, that's oh. a good, sorry, <laughs> or it's just an observation. If you if you don't want to do any, I'll just kind of put it out there. Um, I think I, I, I think one problem is thinking of historical empathy literally. Mm -hmm. So there's no way. I think a good starting place is to say, I can try to put myself in your shoes, or I can try to put myself in General Longstreet's shoes. I'm not going to. I can't even put myself in my own shoes from this morning, or you know, 10 years ago. It's, it can't be done. But thinking about how hard it would be, or it is, is work I can do now. So it does allow me to reflect on myself. I mean, the payoff in all this is not out there. It's not explaining stuff. The payoff is here. 
the payoff is what possibilities it opens for us, right? So, um, so, uh, I mean, there's a thousand things probably historically wrong with Connor Perry's presentation of, you know, Indiana in 1836. Somebody can come along and probably write a book about it. Some of them have written at least articles about it. But, but that's, and that's probably a good exercise for, especially for Connor Perry. Um, but really compared to allowing people to experience um, intimidation, vulnerability, thinking about it themselves, and realizing, I, I mean, what I really like, okay, actually, um, what I remember about a whole lot of the visitors to Connor Prairie saying mm -hmm. was, they said, I wasn't a slave. I, I didn't know what slavery, I didn't, and they always say something like this, I only experienced the tiniest little bit of it. I only experienced a little sliver of it. I always knew I'd be free. I could hear the cars riding around in, in suburban Indianapolis. I knew I was free. So why was I so scared? What did it tell me about me? And that's the question. So, so you're trying to stimulate you know, them to, they, they, won't, they won't be taken and they'll never assume they're, they're runaway slaves. Someone in the pink shirt with checks, yes. So a cry from the heart, from the front line, that many of the um, staff with whom the questioner works feel that they want the date and what happened. They're not interested in more open-endedness. And they, and it just, I heard an emotion that when the, um, when the facilitators say that they feel almost afraid of how they would really interpret the past to school children or so on if, if it was more open-ended. So an observation on the frontline uh, realities. Well, um, we asked those questions in a survey, the survey that we did 20 years ago, and what we found was people are almost all turned off by the history that you're talking about, dates and facts. They hated it, they found it boring, they were doing it for exams, they were doing it for all kinds of reasons, and what they liked about the museum was that it was, they went there with their friends or with their families, not necessarily school groups, but when they went with people who they chose to go with, on, at times they wanted to go. So, I, I mean, I would try to, I would try to develop an approach to the site. What, what is your, what's the site you're talking about? So village museum, relocated building structures. Right. Right. So coming into this, um, re this site with very strong expectations, I would say, of a progressive history where Dallas goes from very little to an amazing city. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I would try to do is just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, give into it. I wouldn't, 
I, I mean, would I answer the question? Of course I would. If somebody said, what year did it happen? Yes, so you could get on. Um, but I try to frame the experience uh, around something with the village that, that they could, uh, I mean, they were real people, right? And there presumably were people who lived in that village and they presumably had encounters and they had hopes and they had fears, which, you, which somebody can find, right? Uh, I would try to start there. And in the back there, yes. Yeah. Ooh, so another frontline observation. When confronted with historic, for complications, many, is, does it, your facilitators, your coworkers are looking for what's the right answer? So I feel a lot of anxiety coming from the front lines. And is, are, do you, are you following on with that? Or? Okay. So there is a great fear of being wrong on the front lines. So fear from, fear from um, being reprimanded by supervisors, by having the um, know-it-all visitor, and we love them very much, right? Um, the ones that say, no, that's not what I heard. Do you have um No, but I'll bet there are other people in the room who do. Okay. So how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it when somebody demands to know the right answer? So one of the suggestions from, an, from someone working at Los Alamos is trying to bring the multiple interpretations to the front. And I should say that those are often documented. So it isn't just like as the Civil War um, issues in the back there. So maybe kind of breaking out the binary is from the suggestion from someone from the sites, International Sites of Conscience that there's not a right or wrong answer, but multiple legitimate answers and exploring how people came to those answers. Okay, and I've got to just get one more person, okay, then you sure. can conclude with South Africa. Yeah, yes.
this is an extraordinarily important kind of logistical issue is that if we want to change the types of interpretation, we might think about the different types of people that are hired and also receive professional training um, to... And so, and then also, kind of uh, the the question, the commenter is saying there is there is very important research in visitor studies. There's a visitor studies association as well, and that they which indicate which get, provides the real data indicating that this isn't just something that people feel that visitors wants. Visitors say they want this. Let me go back to something that was being said that I found extremely helpful dealing with all of these issues, and this is from South Africa, where they. There's a revolution. Power changes. They've got to deal with the past. The past was one where people killed each other a lot. And the South African Truth Commission came up with four truths, four ways of make, that, the, that South Africans could use to make sense of their past. Four different lines of sight on history. I find this the smartest thing out there. They say the first kind, the first truth, they called it, the first truth is forensic truth. Who did what? To whom? When? Where? Who killed whom? For instance, but this is the truth of a detective. This is the truth of outsiders, right? It's who did it. So we don't want, that's not a good enough history. We want how did, sec, second truth, experiential truth. How did the people involved experience it? Whether they were perpetrators or victims or bystanders or beneficiaries, whatever word you want to know it, you want to know how each individual experienced an, a moment. But the trouble with that is everybody experiences it differently. So there's a third truth, what they call dialogic truth or social truth. And that is you put people in, comp in conversation with each other. You put the torturer in conflict with the person he tortured. And they get to talk to each other about what it was like. And he, are you, are you really still a human being when you were wringing that thing around my neck? Dialogue, real dialogue, not academic dialogue, not chat, but real dialogue between people uh, involved in this. And then, so, so that's a way to deal with the problem of individuality. But then there's still moving on. So how do we move on as a nation who killed each other? And the answer there they call healing truth. Truths we say about the past in order to move on. So we might say, for example, apartheid wasn't a system of oppression. It was a system of division among people. What we need is unity now, something like that. But anyway, you make truths, you make statements um, that you agree can help you to move on. And the Truth Commission in South Africa says there's only one thing you can do wrong with these four truths. And that's be mixed up which one you're using at a particular moment. So when we talk to a visitor, or in any context, we can say, I'm now going to try to do an experiential thing. I'm now going to try to do a dialogic thing. What I'm saying now is intended to heal the situation. It isn't the only way. Another way is forensic. Another way is experiential. I found this the smartest answer. So there isn't one right way to be history. There isn't one right way to be an authority. There isn't one right way to, to, to answer questions you get. And you, you could, I find that those four approaches
can be used to almost any question you get about any historical so situation. this is a great way to conclude. Um, the four truths that Dave talked about from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in case people are trying to write them down, one, forensic, two, experiential, three, dialogic, and four, healing. I want to thank you for such a stimulating discussion. I hope that you continue this on as our break and keep this in mind as our, I think our keynote speaker will be bringing up many of these similar issues. Thank you very much.